this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, if you're going in and you're going to see this too, you have to be patient and you, you, you gotta be, you gotta be judicious. You can't, oh, you can't be impatient and, and want that volume to be there overnight. You gotta be, you gotta make yourself just like any practice you've got to build and it's totally normal. And if you're the one footing the bill, it can be a little scary, you know, to be in the negative for a while before you're bringing in paychecks and before you're actually becoming profitable. Very simple rule of investing is the longer you're in the game and the more you put in, you tend to come out on top. It's not hard. And I think people lose money in that world because they pull out early, they sell at the wrong time, and they don't give it enough time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Lincoln Patel as your guest host this week. Like Aaron, I'm a practicing interventional radiologist in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And like our guest today, who I'm very excited to welcome back, Dr. Tim Yates, I am in the process of transitioning from a hospital-based IR practice to an OBO outpatient lab-based practice. In September of 2019, Dr. Yates had transitioned from his academic practice in an, to an OBL-based practice. After four years at Mount Sinai Medical Center and with a continued upward career trajectory, Dr. Yates made the difficult decision to leave his hospital-based practice to join Dr. Warren Sui. Together, Dr. Yates and Dr. Sui provide IR services at Palm Vascular Centers in South Florida. We last spoke with Dr. Yates last February, right before co the COVID pandemic began spreading in the United States. This was a little over four months after he made the transition to an OBL-based practice. In our first broadcast, Dr. Yates discussed why he decided to leave a successful academic practice to work in an OBL and his early experiences in a very different practice than he was accustomed to. It has now been one year and four months since Dr. Yates transitioned to the OBL practice and we wanted to check in with him to see how things are progressing at this point and how his new OBL practice base has been going. Dr. Yates, welcome back. Lincoln, Eric, and everyone at the back table, it's really great to be here. Uh, we made it through 2020, which I'm sure will, you know, consume a fair amount of the discussion uh, going forward, but it's really great to be back. Thanks for having me. And just a fair warning to our listeners, Tim is a very gifted speaker. His enthusiasm is contagious, so the back table is not responsible for any rash decisions he caused you to make, just be aware of that. If you, if you make career decisions based on him, <laughs> that's at your own discretion. You know, that, Lincoln, I think that, that goes in line that the, the cryptocurrency market, market, the stock market are kind of in a, in a boom right now. And I, I watch all these pundits on YouTube and they all love to say, I'm not a financial advisor. None of my advice should be considered, uh, you know, trustworthy for any investments. So just realize this is my opinion for education. So I'm going to give that same Gotta go ahead and give that same uh, same disclaimer. Disclaimer. Understood. <laughs> Understood. First, as you said, COVID has been the overwhelming story for 2020, and that was right when you started to make the transition. How did COVID 19 affect your transition into the OBL market? Well, more importantly, is how it maybe you know how did it not would probably be the, the operative question. But you know, when we talked last, I was very fresh into this this change in career very excited. And I want to tell everyone listening to the podcast, I'm just as excited, if not more excited now, uh, the things are up and running. There was a period of time when this started to come real and we started to see that this wasn't just another, you know, the initial SARS outbreak or some of the less uh, contagious viral pandemics that we've seen in the last couple of decades that we realized this was going to be the, you know, the illness, at least of our inter you know, immediate lifetime. We started to sort of scramble in the office to, to figure out what are we going to do? And obviously legal matters uh, from the state were kind of our guideposts of how are we going to be able to continue practicing? And at least in the state of Florida and, and, and you know, across the nation, you know, by and large, we saw that 
you know, hospitals, particularly in areas that were hit uh, with a high preponderance of disease, had to make decisions about what they considered to be, you know, emergent and urgent procedures and what were considered to be elective. And so obviously we saw all of the elective cases nationwide. I'm sure, you know, Lincoln, you saw this and Aaron too, and all the listeners can, you know, obviously sympathize with this and remember this when it happened. But we just saw all of these elective cases, you know, triple A's, carotid stenting, and other things, you know, a lot of our oncology work that you normally be doing on an outpatient basis electively just have to be put on pause. And the outpatient practices in Florida didn't have any specific uh, legislation as to what they could or couldn't do, but really we had the hospital um, schedules as guideposts. And so what the hospitals are doing, we sort of tried to mirror because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, this is right in my, the part of my personal practice with my, my partner, Dr. Swee, that I was just starting to really kind of ramp up and business was starting to get busy. And I was, I was starting to see more volumes for particularly in peripheral uh, arterial disease and, and deep venous work. And uh, then this hit and we said, oh my God, what are we going to do? Are we going to be able to keep the offices open? And so very early on, we saw that the hospitals were allowing us to continue to do you know, more urgent procedures, patients with wounds, CLI patients that weren't gonna, got going to be able to wait several months, if not, you know, a year to have their work done because they were going to, you know, have complications of their disease. And so we were able to continue doing those CLI cases. And we actually had a huge glut of CLI patients that didn't want to go to a hospital. And we actually personally, it's crazy, but the first three months of the pandemic were my busiest, day, you know, months to date up until, you know, now I'm still you know, doing even better, but so, you know, I was very lucky and we were very lucky to have the, the patient, you know, population that we could still continue to treat, bring our services to additionally, and we can get into some of this going forward, but we saw a major boon in our area in terms of, you know, getting patients and, and, and treating them in a very one-to-one concierge way and have had no uh, infection in our office to date. And it, it really gave, I think the office-based practice here a significant boost of confidence that we could really do these things. I've heard a similar sentiment echoed throughout the country in that people did not want to go to the hospital or hospitals were trying to reserve their beds and not allow outpatient procedures. And many OBLs did see actually an increase in their volume for the urgent cases. They limited their UFEs and, and so forth, but the critical limb ischemia and so forth still got treated as well as the cancer patients. So uh, very similar that the people actually sometimes did see an increase, especially of the more better reimbursing cases is my understanding. Very interesting. So. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, you know, our company had to take out the, you know, the Small Business Administration had to take out the uh, Patient Protection Program loans. I personally uh, took out a small loan. I had just recently started, so I didn't have a lot to, you know, base my my loan on with the government. So I had a, a small piece that came to me and my, my partner did too. But Honestly, you know, there was a period where I didn't know if I was going to even be able to continue to work. And I, I may, we may not have cases and I may have to sort of figure it out for a period of months. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we were able to treat and save a lot of legs during that time. So. So from your first podcast, uh, it seems like you're clearly still very positive about the OBL marketplace and your recommendation to someone looking to decide whether they're going to transition was, and I thought this was very wise, is create a vision of what you're looking for, not what you're trying to run away from. And there are four things that you specifically expressed. And I wanted to go through each of those and see if uh, those have been fulfilled. Uh, one, I, I remember last time you were in the process of moving uh, sort of closer to the new center. Did, how, how, was that done successfully? Yeah, we, I, I, you know, I was, for those of you not familiar with South Florida, I, I was living in Edgewater in Miami, which is very close to Mount Sinai, very close to Miami Beach and, and downtown, just, you know, five minutes from each. But the span of where our offices are now is anywhere from Aventura all the way up to West Palm Beach. And so the, you know, it's about a 90 minute drive from 75 to 90 minutes from Miami to, to, to West Palm. And that's, you know, if you don't have any traffic. And so we moved our, our family just to happen to coincide that my daughters, my twins that live here with me and my wife, we're going to start kindergarten. And, uh, you know, we were looking additionally for, for public schools. And so we moved to Boca Raton because they have some of the absolutely best public schools in the, in the entire state. And it just has worked out perfect because that happens to be central to all the offices that I'm going to. So that's, that's been very nice. And I think you've already answered the second one, complex cases. It seems like you've been doing a lot of critical limb salvage and oncology. And has that been satisfying the degree of complexity that you're seeing? 
I got to be honest, man, I, I, it's kind of the unicorn practice. I feel very lucky to have been able to jump in. I, I don't want to paint the picture that it's this straightforward for everyone trying to get into the, the OBL market, but I will say uh, your reputation and your connections and how you use those uh, to your advantage can, can be uh, crucial. And this was just, you know, the luck and being in the right place at the right time. So yeah, our, uh, our complex case volume is, 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 I mean, I'm doing everything that I want to do. Uh, doing all the cases I was doing in the hospital and not having to do a lot of the other ones that I didn't necessarily want to do either. And uh, we'll, we can talk on this later on because I think uh, we'll probably we'll probably hit on it. But we our uh, oncology program took a little bit of a pause for obvious reasons because we didn't know, A, if we we're going to be able to continue to treat people here in South Florida. But we already have our documentation now in with the state. We're getting our, our site initiation visits and everything happening very soon. So we're Fully, fully running, man. Fully running. Yes. Just to uh, reiterate that disclaimer, your practice may not all be gravy like uh, Dr. Yates's. All the good stuff, nothing bad. That may <laughs> not be the experience everyone has. So may not, may not, may not. And uh, utilizing your savvy and brain power was one of the other critical uh, things you. Yeah, I mean th- that's that's uh, you know just if you have an idea, can you make it you know come to pass? And the culture in the the group that I'm with now is so different than what it was where I was, was that just very simply, if you've got, you know, an idea that can make the practice better, everyone wants to hear about it. And, it, you know, it puts responsibility on you to not just talk. You got to really bring things to, to come to pass, but it's been, it's been awesome. And I, you know, the, the growth opportunities we have, you know, we, we have six offices currently with all centers included in, in South Florida. Now we also have a doctor, Dan Simon up in New York, who is now working with our company. We are looking at some other partners in the, in the South that we're looking to potentially uh, grow with. So there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity, both for investment, um, research. We, we've started to do a lot of clinical research now in our centers. So there's just, it's just, there's so much opportunity, so many people that are excited that, uh, you know, getting the right group together isn't hard. It's the total opposite of what I found when I was in the hospital. You didn't have to go through three committees just to get a meeting set up. Correct. Correct. Excellent. Correct. And, and, and your CLI cases, are you doing mostly transpetal now or, or what is your preference? You know, I, I, I mean, my, my approach is very, I, I try to, I've tried to make that simple because the disease is tough. So, you know, I usually, honestly, I usually start with a patient. I most always start my cases, you know, up and over with, with foot prep, just to make sure that I inflow can be taken care of at the same time as I'm dealing with outflow. If I'm really doing a, a pedal plant or loop reconstruction, those I prefer to go anti-grade, you know, I would say trans tibial or trans pedal access is 50 to 75% of the cases. I mean, I really don't waste a lot of time with anti-grade mechanizations. We don't have outback, we don't have the re-entry devices in the office. It's just expensive and we don't need them. So, you know, I, I, I jump to transpedal access really quickly. It just speeds up the case. It gives you the stability of having two access points for, you know, being able to push and cross and, and get your devices down into place too. It just really keeps all options open. So you just don't go sub-intimal and much, much more straightforward. And so yeah. if you don't, if you can avoid the groin access for the patients, it's so much easier for them too. Absolutely. And I mean, we do do uh, completely, you know, TAMI cases. We do completely non-groin cases, but my, my, you know, I'm not a big radial peripheral interventionist either, but there are certain scenarios where it makes a lot of sense. If it makes sense for me to go completely transtibial, that's great. But I just, I just personally like to be able to see where I'm working after uh, I've done the work. So if I'm coming from a tibial and I've worked on an SFA and, and, and it's coming, you know, and the tibial and I'm running off through the groin sheet, I'm not really seeing that completion runoff. I'm not demonstrating I didn't thrombose the vessel or have pseudo aneurysm where I went in through my access. Though those, you know, rates are low. I just like to be able to have that, you know, access from above to be able to cross, balloon the access site, get a nice picture showing what it looks like there. That's for me the most trustworthy, just personally, the way that I like to do it. So I'm, I'm still a growing guy, but, you know, with closure devices, with good access and growing management, or patients are going home two hours after, after closure. So that's exactly my experience. What I tend to do, so I don't have to do the integrate, but I agree with your completion run from high up. I'll use my... 014, 018 wire and use a TUI with a 035 catheter and inject through that 035 catheter instead of TUI. So it's kind of like getting sheath up, but, but that collapse, you, you basically nothing obstructing, but yeah, I, I, exactly. that's, that's what we do in our TAMI cases. So yeah. that's perfect. So, uh, similar thing. One of the major differences between a hospital base and a OBL based practice, as you alluded to before, Tim, 
is in the hospital, the cases are just almost given to you. You know, the, the practice is self-built. To a certain extent, you, you've seemed to have had that with COVID. They seem to just get transitioned to you and you've had a bit of an easy transition. We were talking about OB was, OBLs were more of a hustle, really. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that does not seem to be, have been to your experience so far. You seem to have uh, gotten it pretty readily because of your experience and your reputation, I suspect. You know, I mean, I don't, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think that my, that's nice of you to say that. I don't think that, you know, I'm just, I'm a, a guy five, six years out of a fellowship to in practice. I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not like a known quantity out there. Like some of the other big names are, I wouldn't say that the reputation has really made uh, much of a difference. I've been very lucky, but what I would say is that I, what I think at least my, my impression, and I think we'll probably talk about this some of the podcast too, is that. I was actively involved in a lot of marketing. We talked about that in the last, uh, last podcast, which, you know, as you mentioned, that that's where the hustle comes and that's where you're going out to try to, I mean, at the end of the day, I think people think you're marketing, you're trying to go get something from somebody. But the way that I look at it is I'm trying to bring something to somebody. I'm trying to meet a partner out there in the community that needs a service that we can bring uniquely to them. And how can we interface with them to make their patient care easier? And so we were really, Ross Pentland, who's our director of marketing. Now we've got a couple of other marketers in our West Pole market that have really made a big splash. We were hitting the road a lot and we were hitting offices and then boom, everyone's in masks. Don't come into the office. You can't see us. We don't even want to take Zoom meetings because we think we might get it through Zoom. You know, it just all of a sudden was like, oh crap, what are we going to do? And so I think, you know, I think that some of the clot of patients that did come through were partially related to not wanting to go to the hospital, but, I, but we had, I mean, I had a, a couple of podiatry colleagues that were sending like just hand over fist at this point in a, a wound care center that we'd been working with um, and had had some major successes with in terms of limb salvage. And they just sent all of their patients to us during that time. And so I really do attribute a lot of that early, that early kind of glut to our efforts that then stopped. And so, you know, three months after the start of the pandemic, you know, our volumes were going like this. And then I started seeing kind of ticker now. We're like, okay, what are we going to do? We can't really, you know, hit these offices, at least without some notice. And now it's been, you know, out to this point, it's been a good hybrid. Volumes have picked up, but, you know, we've been visiting people and we've been trying to do things and, and to kind of keep, get the message out. So I, you know, I, 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 I think it's been, I think it's been the right mix of, of having to hit the road and, and kind of do the marketing business kind of standpoint. I, like I said, I owe a lot to my partners and the company for having a system that was working, but, you know. Despite that fact, as you grow, things change. You got to continue to reinvent and be willing to sort of change something that, that you know, was working, stops working, you got to figure it out. And that's kind of, you know, we're seeing that now as we're growing too, so. And before you're doing two days a week of marketing, are you, with the COVID, I imagine that's not happening, obviously, in person. Have you been able to do different marketing at all or have you just had to stop that? No, we, I mean, for about six months, we just sort of, you know, we played it by ear. If I had free time, et cetera. We would, we would jump in and, and just try to get some offices since, you know, the, the, over the last three or so months, I've been going out about a day a week. And some of that's been limited too, because as our West Palm office has grown, I've taken on a couple of extra procedure days. So now every single morning is filled with procedures Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, I have the West Palm office that I see. So there's not like a, a chunk of free time either. So that's made it a little more challenging, but we're still hitting you know, afternoons on say like Tuesdays where I'm a little lighter and we're, we're still doing it. And, you know, the response has been, been pretty good and we've, you know, been able to, you know, create new partnerships and, and can you continue to grow with the older, the older partnerships too. So. Yeah. And is there any focus marketing that you found to be the most effective? You know, a lot of the people that we're targeting, a lot of the groups we're targeting are, I mean, it's primaries and podiatrists. So I'm still surprised by, you know, podiatrists, even who are very uh, well-versed uh, in, and, and sort of the role or the purpose of revascularization in limb salvage and diabetic renal failure patients, patients with true critical limb ischemia, not just neuropathic wounds. I'm always surprised that they still don't necessarily have like a, a vascular surgeon, a cardiologist, or an adventure radius on speed dial because they are doing all these surgeries. They're still trying to prevent major amputations, but I've still managed to, you know, make contacts with people like, oh yeah, we totally need a vascular person. And like, you guys don't, you're doing all these surgeries and you're doing all this limb salvage. How are you, I mean, it, it brings, raises the question of how much of these need to be truly revascularized. Right. But you know, I, I'm like, at least send your patients so we can evaluate them and at least help, you know, make sure that you're going to be, or at least pretest probability, they're likely to be successful without a revascularization, et cetera. So, I mean, for, 
for PAD, it's been the same podiatry and primary offices. As we're now jumping into building Y90 and really trying to focus a little bit more this year as reimbursements and peripheral arterial disease are taking a little bit of a cut, we're going to continue that volume, continue that because that's what we do. But the EMBO game is sort of an, another focus and uh, the marketing, this is where we're going to have to get creative because the, the oncology world is, tends to be much more close-knit, closed off. And, uh, you know, we're going to see how we do that. So I, I've got the, the marketing crew. We're going to start to figure that out as we get approved for Y90 in our office up in Delray. What logistical challenges, especially with, do you need a new slab? Do you see with Y90 going forward and, and, and so forth? Yeah, good question. We, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I've been, I've used both uh, Therosphere and Certex. Certex has a phenomenal, by no means am I, you know, partisan to any, any crew, but they, they happen to have a very, uh, just an amazing office-based Y90 program that they have. And they've really done a lot of like, like work and they kind of know all the steps and they've got about 20, 25 really, you know, high volume Y90 offices now. And all of those offices have been just getting slammed with cases during the, during the pandemic for obvious reasons, for the reasons we already touched on Lincoln. And so, you know, we're going to have everything in our office. We have a, a nuclear medicine, an imaging center who happens just to have a, you know, gamma camera, like a quarter of a block from where we are in the same medical complex. And so we're going to, we're going to partner with them to do our, our uh, spect imaging, et cetera, after our scans or after our procedures. And, you know, we're building the hot lab. I've got all of the, the information I need in terms of all the equipment we're going to need. And we're going to have that all built and, and set up in place in our Delray office before we do our state inspection. So again, it's, it's, I've been very thoroughly impressed with how well packaged their product is. And it's really almost like just plug and play because it's not an easy thing to figure out on your own. And I'll tell you, I don't know how the, the state, you know, ra radiation safety boards are in other states, but in Florida, they, the state doesn't move fast at all and anything they can do to delay they will so to have all of these things already proven that they've worked multiple times you know is it's been really great uh, is the company helping you on the reimbursement side as well uh they do have they do have resources and there are things we can do to sort of improve likelihood obviously certain payers are already kind of in the in the know and so we're going to start with a low-hanging fruit in that regard as we build this out but it, i mean it's still you know, I mentioned Curtis Anderson last time. He's a, another really great IR working in the area in the office, and he's a little further south of Miami. He's been doing Y90s um, for the last year or so, if not a little bit longer. And I, as far as I'm aware, has been, you know, getting reimbursed and having great results. So at least there's a precedent in the area, I think, too. And, and you know, colleagues that we can kind of bounce ideas off each other, how we can, you know, figure out how to get through this state. So, And on your analysis of the reimbursement, my analysis is you're basically getting paid similar to any other embolization. And then the cost of the beads is just covered. Is, is that what your interpretation is? Correct. As well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, are you doing, are you any future in prostate artery embolization for the OBL setting for you? So the, the answer in the, in the broad spectrum is yes. You know, I think that, I think in the academic setting, I think we overstate the importance of code beam CT and a lot of what we do probably in oncology we could get away without using it as much as we do, but it's kind of one of those things that when you have it and you can figure out a problem and feel more confident that you're really truly seeing in space, 3D space, where you want to be, doesn't it make sense to do that for the patient? I, I think it makes sense. I think if, it, if you consider it to be safer, certainly if you consider it to be more effective, it just makes sense to use that technology. So, you know, we, we have C-arms. We're, we're not doing... You know, we don't have a fixed floor II or any rotation capacity, but there are talks about, you know, our West Palm office as we're actually building that out, maybe having a fixed floor unit, which I think would be a major boon for that. And so I think that prostate for one, I think the, the uh, stakes are high uh, for non-target embolization. In my personal experience, I have been fortunate to not, but I'm just not confident that in a very, you know, a, a little old 85-year-old smoker with, you know, highly calcified hypogastrics and in pudendal branches that I'm really going to be able to feel confident anatomically. So I, you know, I will tell you the one thing in the office, it's been real easy is that if you don't have a great feeling about it, don't do it because the complication in the office is a big deal and your, your ability to pivot from that is, is harder. So, you know, unless it makes total sense, we're going to work our way into that, much like the UV market, which I think is easier and I think less uh, uh, potential stakes. 
in terms of any side effects. But uh, yeah, I think that, I think that actually it's a great option. Uh, I just think that I think that the uh, technology has to catch up, and w- we need to be in a position where we have the technology at our hand at our fingertips. So the equipment limitations currently are are your most uh, that would be my personal. Yeah. I will tell you, Sweetie is Sweetie, my partner. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is very bullish on on prostate. So we're going to be doing it. It's just a question of how we approach that. And I just like I said. Um, Safety is my primary concern. When I was in the hospital, I will tell you, I was very aggressive about everything. And I'm still very aggressive about who I treat. But the way that I treat, if there's something that could potentially have, you know, a a poor outcome, I'm much, much more likely to think about it, stop and even stage a person or just say, we're not going to go there right now. We're going to see how you do with this amount. 70% of it wanted to to achieve. We're going to see how you do. And, I, and that's one of the things that uh, I've seen with, with Sui. He's so judicious. He's just, he doesn't ever go too far. And he always goes just enough. I think, I think just not going too far is, is going to get you to where you need to go. So I've been very impressed with his, with his judgment. So that's something that I've tried to absorb. And, and prostate is just one of those things that unless you've done a thousand of them, kinda, I think, you know, the way I would put it, Lincoln, is, you know, if you've done a thousand uh, venograms with intravascular ultrasound of the iliocable and femoral veins. You kind of know what a compression looks like with just the venogram because you've seen it on an IVUS so many times. So you actually start to retro well, sort of rebuild the venogram image that didn't have as much information because you know what it would look like on IVUS. You can actually tell where a compression is that you wouldn't have necessarily seen before you had your IVUS experience. I think this is probably similar. You know, you've got a, a couple of big centers down here in, in South Florida who could probably get away with with doing that, but you know, our volumes, it's, it's so scattered. I just would hate to have a complication and shut down a program because you didn't have the right, you know, either patient or the right equipment. And, and you're talking about a benign disease overall, you know, you're treating people. Totally. Uh, it's, so it's a little bit totally. harder to justify. Totally. Of the many things we talked about, the differences between the hospital-based practice and OBL is that now you are essentially the boss of the techs, the nurses, the schedulers, while in the hospital, the hospital where they are. Have you seen more of a commitment from them or to you? Do you see a difference in how you're treated? You have no idea. And I, you know, I want to, I want to get into what's happening with you toward the end of this here too, because it sounds like some exciting things are happening. I'd love to hear for our viewers to, to get a chance to see not only what's going on in someone who's now, you know, a year or two into the game, but someone who's really knee deep in the weeds and figuring out from the ground up. So I'll, I'll answer this question, but I definitely want to make sure that we have time for our, our, our listeners to hear what's going on with you too, Lincoln, because it sounds exciting. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to have, one of the things I focused on in my head was I want to have a team of ninja warriors and I want to have a team of people who are all focused. And it has been the most fulfilling thing, I think, of doing this has been the team of people, the people that I work with, my techs, my nurses, they're, they're warriors and they understand the disease. They know what to do. They anticipate. The turnover time is like, boom. It's like, there's no waiting. They're always ready to go uh, all the way from the surgical coordinators to the MAs. It's been absolutely phenomenal. And, I, and I'll, it's a little strange to be the boss when you're not used to necessarily having that much clout. And so it has engendered to me a really healthy respect for the, for the team. And I always try to mentally say, you know what? They need a little, they need breakfast today, or we're going to take them out for a happy hour because they've really kicked ass and they put in the hours and it's a pandemic and they're still coming in to work. Like it's been, it's been a lot of fun because it's a lot more like a family and, and taking care of them. It's a mutual sort of an upward spiral. Everybody feels better about what we're doing because we take care of each other. So it's, it's, you know, not to say that th- those practices don't happen in hospitals because they do. And, uh, I, you know, what works for me may not work for you or someone else listening, but the reality is I've been just very blessed for lack of a better term. I'm very lucky with, with what's happened. Uh, I just want to say that disclaimer once again, based on this, <laughs> you may not experience this, uh, but you already hit on it. And I wanted to have you make sure you, it's a two-way street. It's not just that they're beholden to you, you are beholden to them. And how do you take care of them? And I think you already expressed, you know, happy hours, lunches, those go a long way to taking care of your people. And so it's thank crazy. you. It's crazy. They really, really, it's just, it's little stuff. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't even have to cost money. I mean, it's just, you just treat them like a human being and they'll do the same. And, you know, what, well, there was a, one of the, one of the things that I think is important is, you know, we're all, all young and we're all, you know, still 
you know, fairly with it, you know, and it's I'm easy. for younger than others. Tim. Uh, well, I'm getting up I'm, there. I'm, I'm not with it. I don't want to imply that. But I guess my point is that sometimes uh, because it's a younger crowd and, and we're all kind of working toward the same goals and we're all sort of at the same stages of life, I guess life stage is what I'm trying to get at. Sometimes it can get easy to take what we do personally. And, uh, you know, our patients are quite ill and have been ill for a long time. And there's a lot of psychology that goes with that. And, uh, you know, I remember a couple of, of, of incidents that I think really opened eyes for people uh, like a, an old, really salty, upset patient that, you know, had, had been having a really hard time with something. And my, my medical assistant was talking to him on the phone and, you know, was talking, wasn't really maybe it wasn't necessarily unprofessional, but probably could have dealt with a little more emotional intelligence with the situation. And, uh, you know, I've had several of those uh, situations where just say, you know, this 86 year old who's got a black toe and pain and can't sleep at night, hasn't been normal for six months and their husband just died a month ago. And you may not have known that, but they're trying to figure out their place in life and they're trying to figure out whether they want to continue on. And so when they're talking to you on the phone about why you didn't answer when they called and why they didn't schedule the way you wanted, they're not talking to you personally. They're talking to themselves. They're talking to their disease. They're talking to their state in life. And if you look at that patient that way, you're going to have a lot more compassion. You're not going to take things personally and you're going to do the right thing for them. And I think that that's like created a lot of buy-in with people and they kind of, I mean, it's not perfect. It's not foolproof. And I have days where I get upset with patients and we're going to fire them of that person, this, that, or the other. It's like everyone goes through those things. And I think everyone listening can, can sort of sympathize with that. But if we just keep them in the center and think, you know, again, is this, if this was my dad, what would I do? And that's, you know, that's how we try to do it. That's a great anecdote about, anecdote about the, how you manage your personnel. And that's something someone that's going to go into the oil marketplace has to be able to do. If you do not have experience in how to coach people that may be something you want to get a little take a course or get some insight into about your emotional intelligence and how you uh, deal with your employees that's something i've done extensively you're clearly doing it extensively and that's something you're going to have to be able to do because they're your frontline people they, they are your that's who the community sees as representing you you are on i mean from if you're let's put it this way I've, we've had, you know, people, people come and go and Lincoln, I think you're, I think honestly, if people did like Y90, PAD, CLI, doing cases, reimbursement, OBL, that's a sideline to what we're talking about right now. I think this is a critical topic. And I think, I hope we talk about this on the back table even more because emotional intelligence, understanding how to listen to people, it tells the whole story. And if you don't have anything that you need to say, you don't say anything, but I think you're putting the, you're putting the nail on the head, man. These people aren't just your team. They're your fingers. They're your arms. They're not disconnected from you. They are you. And so when that person's in a bad mood and they answer the phone and they pop off to the person on the other line, it's equivalent to you popping off to them on the other line. And that patient may never come back. And guess what? That podiatrist or that oncologist or that surgeon that you've been talking to, to try to get the save, have them send you patients. They may be the person at the other end of that. And if they have to justify your existence to that patient, it's going to be a pain for them. So re everyone really has to buy in and you got to find a way to make everybody understand, you know, why you're doing it and that they make a huge impact and that it's not like the doctor doing cases, driving the Maserati. That's all BS. That's total garbage. It's really about the person coming into the office and every person that's a personnel to that company takes care of that patient. So that's really, I don't, you know, I, I didn't change the culture. They were this way when I came in. So again, I've been lucky, but I've tried to really reinforce it since I've been there. Yeah. It sounds like you're in a great situation. I also want to say managing personnel, it's not very common that you have to let somebody go, but if someone has a repeated behavior, you also need to know how to manage that in improved performance plans and, and so forth. Having unfortunately fired or made people leave more IRs than I care to count. I've probably fired more people IRs than most people have hired, unfortunately. But that yeah. was, you know, that's the situation I was in. That's something you're going to have to become comfortable with. There are situations where you improve by attrition. And you're right. And, and, and I'll tell you what, man, I mean, you know this better than anybody. And I'd be curious to hear 
you know, a sort of a summary of those experiences. But one of the things that we're not all there, look, doctors don't like to document. We have to document like crazy all the time. So anything we could do to decrease our documentation, we try to do. I think that's probably fair to say anybody listening will probably be silently chuckling and nodding their head, right? But I will tell you something. This is a situation that you're describing. You have to document the SH, you know what, out of it. You have to show that the person is having these issues. You've tried to remediate. You want to make sure that you're giving them a fair shot. You want to make sure that you paint the picture to anyone on the outside, depending upon what your employment law is in your given state. You want to make sure that if you have to let someone go, that you've done the right things. And that's stuff that we don't think about, like coming out of medical school or, or fellowship training. That's not something they train you on. So you're giving golden advice, Lincoln. And I think, I hope the, the, I hope the listeners are, are really paying attention. And the last thing I want to say on the HR side of things is no matter how many meetings you have with an individual, don't, uh, you cannot imagine how many people will say, even though you've documented, I don't remember this conversation at all. It's, it's a deniability is very powerful in these individuals that they can brush aside what you've said and be like, I don't think that's what you were saying when you've clearly documented it, you've told them. So if you've never done any HR management of people, you will be shocked at what people can just, just completely allow to go past there. Management is so big in the, in the office. And, uh, so I, I totally agree with you, Lincoln, what, what's uh, going on in your, in your end of the world right now with your development in terms of your, uh, your office? Good question. COVID has pushed things back. So let me just step back a little bit. I, I left my private practice back in April and this was pre-planned. It had nothing to do with COVID. I had given my six month notice in October, October 2019 out of the hospital, right? <laughs> and, and I left in April. I could have stayed on with the group, but I made the choice at that time that the group didn't need me. And I was in a financially secure position that I didn't need the job. So very fortunate that way. So I decided to leave. Currently, I am working as I want to, basically for the group. I'm doing pediatric intervention only days, about seven to eight days a month. And I do legal expert work. The nice thing about it is I do it when I want. Financially, it, it pays the bills. It's fine, but I cannot, I cannot be happier at this moment. That's awesome. So. We've taken a step back. Uh, I, we really expect to be open first quarter this year around this time, but with COVID and so forth, I'm actually glad we're not, and I'm not pushing the construction phase because I don't really want to open during COVID. No, it, it, too many unknowns. I mean, I think you could, you know, like I said, our experience, we got had a, a flood, but you're starting fresh and you're a known quantity in your area, but you would hate to have an office up and running and have no business for six months because you picked the wrong time. So I, I just want to give you the mental, I think you're doing the right thing. So uh, let's take, talk a little bit more about the options that we have. If someone wants to go to the OBL, the options are you can go as an employee, obviously to any of these so plenty of OBLs that are hiring employed physicians. You can build something from the ground up, which is what I'm doing, but I'm not doing it individually like Mary Constantino is. Uh, she, I believe, did it solo. Uh, I decided before that I, I wanted to join with some people that had some experience. I could have probably done it, but I just did not have, I think, the knowledge to do it at that time. And so I joined with another IR that knows the area that we're building in because I had to build outside of my non-compete. So I, what, was, I, what was your non-compete just for? for non-compete is five miles for two years okay. uh, from any center you cover. And we're the biggest private practice group in the country. So that encompasses quite a yeah you get boxed out DFW. yeah you get boxed out yeah. so i chose you know i what i did is i got on google chose all our sites did the five mile you know and, and, I, and i've made a map and i told okay i started looking at these areas i was fortunate that i talked to this guy and then we had friends that their uh, relatives were building ir centers okay. in, in other places and they're like do you want one was in oklahoma city i'm like they're like are you interested i'm like let me come take a look so I drove up to Oklahoma City, took a look at it. And there are these two young guys that are starting. One is purely a business guy whose dad was a nephrologist and told him, listen, you should really do this. Right. Uh, this, is, this is a great practice. And the other guy has experience in uh, building. He, he built hotels, construct commercial projects. Oh, cool. So everyone's bringing their own set of skills. So we, we don't have a general contractor. We're building from the ground up. 
having four people has allowed us to build a whole medical office building rather than just an IR center. So we're building 18,000 square feet. I'll take 7,000 of that square feet. We have another partner that's taking 2,500-ish. Are you guys so we'll have, buying or leasing your property? You we are it? buying everything. Yeah. And that's another that. thing that's really Smart allowed us. Move. Ownership, ownership, ownership is Smart what I have. Smart man. Smart move. You have the capability to do it. Own, own, own. Own. So having four people in there and a fifth partner has really allowed us to build from the ground up however I wanted. And, and so we're right now, the slab is laid. We, we have all the permits. We have all the construction. Slab is laid. The steel, found, uh, steel frame is up. Walls will be going up next. And then we'll start hiring. I've had, having been in practice for here for 17 years, uh, I didn't learn as quickly as Tim did. Tim did it in four years and he realized I want to do something. I'm just not as quick a learner as Tim, fortunately. I doubt uh, that, man. I doubt that. But I, I've, I've worked throughout the Metroplex. I've had so many nurses and techs call me and, of like, hey, I understand this is what you're doing. They want out as call as much as we do, number one. And you really are going to have the pick of the litter as far as picking really good people. Will, my friend, and you will be so happy. that I would tell you something. My lead tech in my Broward office, his name's Carlos Castillo. He's a one-of-a-kind guy. He's a great guy. And, you know, I don't think he's listening to this, but he's a, just a stud. And he left my hospital and actually went worked for Palm completely, you know, independent of, of me. I had no idea. And then I came there. And so, you know, every time I'm in that office, it's like you're working with a guy who, it's, again, it's like a, your arm. It's like, there's not even disconnected from your body. It's like part of your person. And you're going to love that, man. You're going to be able to give people, um, uh, more hope. They're going to, you know, they're going to love working with you. And you're going to, like you said, you're going to have to pick. And it's, it's a lot of fun to have a team of people who are really highly effective and just good people. So going forward, Tim, we, Aaron and I want to do future, like once I get up and running to see what challenges I'm facing that are different from yours, that are different from Mary. We'd eventually like to do a round table. So if we can get that to happen, I think that'd be great. Man, that'd be great. Would love to. That'd be great. So remind us of what your current structure and your relationship with Paul Vascular and Dr. Swee is. Yeah. So I, Paul Vascular is a separate entity and Dr. Swee had his own private offices and had his own company when he started. I, you know, Dr. Swee is an owner and has ownership in Paul Vascular and is also a private contractor for his medical services. So I will be, I will be partnering with Swede through his company, but I'll be able to have ownership in Paul Vascular and what he and I build together. Uh, we had a three year partnership track with the potential to move it up to two years. Things have gone very well. We've gone through our numbers. He's been very happy. And even despite the pandemic, we've done, we've done pretty well. So uh, he's been very happy. So we're looking, you know, all things considered could be signing, you know, partnership papers over the course of the next nine months or so. So if, you know, if not, we go out to the three years, but, but that's kind of how we're going to go. Um, you know, the CEO, uh, of our company, Eric Rogers is, uh, he's a young guy. He's, he's our age and he's not medical. He's a purely a businessman. Uh, he's got a lot of good ideas. Uh, and he's also got ideas that need our help as doctors. And so I see a lot of opportunity to get, you know, good partners in with this group and get a, a group of guys and gals that I think are going to be going to be able to make a, a big change in the way that we do uh, office-based medicine. So it's, it's a, it's a good, a good setup. We, we all have a pretty good relationship. Well, congratulations on moving up the partnership track. So excellent. You got it, man. And again, that's just one of the many options uh, that, that you have. I think that's a very stable option going just the employee track. It's an option, but if you're not willing to bet on yourself, who else will? So I really encourage the ownership track if you can do it. It's not for everybody, but bet on yourself is what I can. But it is one of those things, Lincoln, that once you do it, it's kind of like, I would never do anything else. It's like once you're there and you realize what the upside is, the downside isn't really a downside because you're going to, like you said, you're, you're the one, you know, putting yourself out there. You're, you, if you can't support yourself, no one else can. So I think I already know the answer to this, but what's been the most rewarding part of your transition to the OBL? Man, if, if I had one thing, you know, it, it, it was people I missed at the hospital, but it's still people, you know, there's a lot of great stuff. I don't, I'm not taking call. I'm doing the kind of cases I want to do. My schedule is totally reasonable, busy, but reasonable, but it's still, you know, I, I got a group of great people at my office. I mean, I could be miserable because I got the wrong people and not have any way to move them. And, and there's a, they're very active about getting personnel into the right place where they need to go. Our HR is very, very aggressive in that regard and wants to make sure everyone's happy. So it's people, man. I just, you know, the That's what I was going to guess. And, so. You seem to love your techs and nurses. And, great. Uh, that would have been my guess as well. And any challenges that you didn't see that have come up? You know, 
if you're going in and you're going to see this too, you have to be patient and you, you, you gotta be, you gotta be judicious. You can't, oh, you can't be impatient and, and want that volume to be there overnight. You gotta be, you gotta make yourself just like any practice you've got to build and it's totally normal. And if you're the one footing the bill, it can be a little scary, you know, to be in the negative for a while before you're bringing in paychecks and before you're actually becoming profitable. Very simple rule of investing is the longer you're in the game and the more you put in, you tend to come out on top. It's not hard. And I think people lose money in that world because they pull out early, they sell at the wrong time and they don't give it enough time. And this is no different unless you're a total hack, which no one really, really is. Although of course there are some, but, but you know, no one really, really is. You got to support yourself, believe in yourself. You got to just stick in it. And so the challenge is just to be patient with yourself and to know that you're still not, you can't save everybody. You didn't give them their disease and you're still trying to do the right thing and everything will eventually come. And you just got to kind of ride on that wave and just let it come. Ever have that voice in the back of your head, especially early on, that'd be like, man, do, if I don't do this for somebody, am I going to lose their business? And how do you deal with that? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, I, you know, I get, I get sent stuff and I'm like, what are they doing in my office? But I, I, I just, you know, it's like the, 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 the saying is if you just tell the truth, all the truth, all the time, you don't have to remember what lie you told and you don't have to remember what story it was that you gave somebody in this regard. If it's something that I fundamentally just don't agree with, this is where you get to show your character and say, you know what, if that's the business you're going to send me, I don't want that business. And I'm going to go find someone else who has the patients that need my help that I can help bring back to the person that's referring so that they look good. So honestly, I mean, there may be a period of time where you have to do cases that you're not in love with. There may be a period of time where you have those things, Lincoln, where you're like, do I have to have to do this? And it's paying the bills. And that's an unfortunate kind of reality of what we do, but it's not a permanent thing. And if it's something you're fundamentally opposed to, if you go against yourself, nobody can support you. So I just, I'd rather take the hit financially than do something that I'm not going to be able to sleep with. You know, I think setting that precedent early on is really important. And, and I found that if you're uncomfortable with it, placing a call to that physician early on the first time, like, Hey, I just got this. I, I just wanted to make sure I don't think I can do anything. Are you okay with that? And most of the time they're really appreciative, appreciative of you making the call and saying, yeah, I, I agree with your opinion. I, I think yeah. taking that extra early step is what I, what I tend to do is what I'm worried about. Like, am I going to make this person angry because they haven't sent me much and I'm not doing anything. I just tend to place a call to them and be like, this is what I'm thinking. I want to make sure you're okay with it. And vast majority of the time they're like, oh yeah, just thanks. And they're more than happy with it. You're, you're on the money. And it just, if, if anything, call more than less or text more than less. The communications, the one thing that I've gotten from people that I've worked with now over these, this period of time is that the communication's good. And that's so critical that they get my notes right away uh, and they hear from me when I treat their patients. And we have this binary thing in our head that we think, oh my God, if we don't do what they want us to do, that we're going to, you know, they're going to, we're going to lose their business. But at the end of the day, they're not the expert in what they're sending to you to be treated. You are. And so, like you said, man, you're like, look, I, I've treated tens of thousands of these and I can tell you the natural history is X, Y, and Z. They're outliers. I could be wrong and I would be willing to bet that I'm not wrong in this situation and I want to do right by the patient and by you. So I, you're right, man, just be honest. And there are people, you will, you will attract the people that you want to be around you by being that way. And if you're a shyster, you're going to find yourself with shysters. It's kind of how it works. And, and I always end it with, I'm willing to try it, but I just want you to know if it doesn't work, I'm not surprised by it. And I really appreciate that too, that, okay, I'm willing to try it for you, but don't be surprised if it doesn't work. And when it's totally reasonable. Okay. And, and so I, I, that's one last thing I would like to add to that. And so four years in practice, what skills do you think you acquired more that you, that you acquired that were most important to go into the OBL setting, you think? I've got a couple of people that uh, I trained that uh, I've talked to about potentially, you know, becoming partners down the road. And I kind of always preface it with after you've had some time in a hospital or in a really busy private practice. And I think the, I think the, you can't fake the 10,000 hours thing. You just can't, you just have to have time in the game. And 
after 10,000, people think after 10,000 hours that you're like, you know, if you play the violin, you're going to be a virtuoso. It's not necessarily that you're going to be a virtuoso. You just understand what that thing is. And you don't have to like read about it. You know what's good, the sound it's going to make when you move it a certain way. And that's the kind of the analogy here is I had four years of, of busy practice. I did everything and I managed a lot of really sick people. And so I know what it looks like when someone's about to go downhill and I know what to do when they're going to go downhill so that, you know, in this setting, when you have a lot less resources, you try to stay away from those places. And I've been very lucky to try to just, again, good judgment, just try to be safe uh, and do the right thing. So uh, it's just time in the game and the complexity of stuff that you're doing. It's great to have the support of an institution. It's great to have the support of good partners if you're in a group. I think those are the two things that really made a difference for me to be confident that I could do all that same stuff in an office where I have a lot less resources. Excellent. And moving forward, especially, I'm sure you're looking to the end of COVID. What are your future goals for, for your OBL? Or your, sounds like you're wanting to bring more people on, number one, yeah. going to more centers. What, what, are, what are you looking forward to? You know, we do something where, where we have an upper limit, right? We, we have it. It's like, a, it's like in a factory. It, you can only make 10,000 boxes in a day. And once you've reached that capacity, you have to build another office, right? Well, we're, we as doctors can only do so many cases in any given period of time, right? We could max out. And, and if you're maxing out, you're probably on the edge of maybe being unsafe and you can have bad outcomes and other things. So there's a limit to what we can generate financially uh, and just professionally in what we do. So for me personally, you know, I want to grow our brand. I want to grow our group. And I want us to do, you know, to be the guys in the area among the really good operators. And there are several outside of our organization that are good friends and colleagues that I hope I'm rooting for to do well too. But, I, you know, I want to basically not do things that don't make sense. I don't want to just do a bunch of cases to do a bunch of cases. I'd rather have, you know, three legs in a day and a couple on cases and call it good. And we have a good life. We're taking care of people. The staff is happy. They're not overworked. And in, in line with some of the, the stuff we talked about last time, sort of using your head to create new things, you know, we have a great opportunity with multiple different centers in our organization and different operators that we could develop devices or we could do research protocols or we could try out new systems like let's be, let's start a new blockchain medical company. I, you know, there's a lot of opportunity out there to do things that aren't dependent on you physically being there, sticking a needle in a person that could also bring income in again for your ideas. And so that's where my goal is to sort of continue to partner with the company to look at bigger vision stuff and figure out ways that we can grow and do things that are going to be meaningful. Well, Tim, I think that concludes our podcast. Thanks so much for being our guest today and taking the time to tell us about your experience in transitioning to the OBL practice. So really, I think, I hope this has given people that are considering transitioning to the OBL market a little bit more information that we hope to continue to do this in the future. I'm your host, Lincoln Patel. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for having me.